Hello, welcome to Stages. I'm your host, Peter Ayers, and I wanted to start this episode by sharing some exciting information. The Stages podcast will record live in Sydney for the very first time as part of the Ideas Program at the 2022 Vivid Festival. Engaging and informative, the show is a vital chronicle of oral histories from Australia's rich arts heritage. The podcast has featured 285 conversations thus far with creative artists and performers from a range of performing arts disciplines. This three-series event at Vivid will celebrate the contribution of three key elements vital to the art of telling stories. On Thursday, June 2nd, my guest will be producer Carmen Pavlovich. Thursday, June 9th, we welcome costume designers Jennifer Irwin and Julie Lynch. And the series is completed on Thursday, June 16th, when our guest is the artistic director of the Griffin Theatre Company, Declan Green. Tickets are free, and to register, just visit the Vivid website and search for Stages Live. There are going to be three fantastic conversations, and it'll be great to have you in the audience, watching Stages on stage. We look forward to your company. And now, here's today's episode. Hello, I'm Peter Ayers, and you're listening to Stages, the podcast that converses with creatives... Then the next block further down there was the Royal, then the Prince Edward was right opposite the Royal, then the Savoy. And we used to get fined if you were late for the half hour and fined for misbehaving on stage. Just for God's sake, do it better. (laughs) Sometimes that's all you can say. But when you've gone through that, you do get a lot of ego. And you go out there knowing that the one thing that's different every time is that audience. I didn't wake up until... I was in emergency. I was around the uh, world of actors as a child. Crawfords were needing a casting assistant. No business plan, no concept, no training. It's not something you could do now. Went to school on Friday, got on the bus on Saturday, auditioned for the show. They said, you've got the role. I never went back to school again. (laughs) Thank you. I've enjoyed being here talking about my favourite subject. You go and check me. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's a date. (laughs) It's a date. Warren and Pam Kermond belong to a dynasty of performers who have made an indelible mark on the performing arts in Australia and abroad in a range of theatrical styles. Vaudeville, comedy, acrobatics, musical theatre and dance. Their stages have been vast and varied, from the touring tent shows of Sawley's to the majesty of the Tivoli, and the global club circuit. It's experience that counts, and they have it in spades. Pam is one of 11 children. An enthusiastic aunt suggested that she should take dance lessons, and so grew her career in show business. Initially, this was in Thanks for the Memories, and then as a magician's assistant to the Great Levant. Growing up as a third of now five generations of a show business family, Warren gained experience at a very early age in theatre, pantomime, nightclubs, television, cabaret and musical theatre. He has been involved in every aspect of the entertainment industry over the past 50 years. Warren and Pam toured internationally with their celebrated double act. Billed as an acrobatic song and dance act, they navigated tours and stages, enthralling and delighting audiences with a unique entertainment. Warren and Pam are a prominent fixture in our performing arts heritage. They are a link to an entertainment past that is now a memory, but one that we must acknowledge, investigate and celebrate. This is a conversation that is essential listening. Hey, 
and how to walk off. That sounds silly, doesn't it? Yeah. But there's a way to walk on and there's Absolutely. a way to walk off. Basic stagecraft. Yeah, yes. isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And sadly, a lot of the kids aren't learning that because the teachers also are not familiar with it. Yeah. Not, all, it but not all of them, but you know, sadly, most of them. So there's a lot of things that they miss out on, which from our point of view, you think, isn't that sad? You know, just little things like that. We were on Netflix couple of nights ago no YouTube and obviously the uh, the computer knows what we look at we like watching watching biographies of, of actors and entertainers and things but it threw us to the Academy Awards I was telling my grandson Sam and uh, through the 70s to the 90s but they did it through starting off with the opening which was usually the comics or the comedic people and they did all that, and then they did went through to the dancers and production, and then they went through the singers, and it was a most incredible thing. But the thing that stood out f for me was the fact that it the Oscars were like a show; they were entertaining, and the people that were on were entertainers, mixed in very cleverly with the um, with the actors. And because it is a different mindset, as you know. But, um, and I thought, now they're making political statements and mm. they're doing this and that. Mm. And they wonder why the ratings has dropped mm. in, in worldwide. It's because it's, it's not entertaining anymore. Mm. But a lot yeah. of those um, MGM stars and the, the, the people that would have been performing in that award mm. ceremony mm. grew out of vaudeville that's and right. they, yeah, they had a, right. a great grounding. Well, that they? kind of confirms what I was talking about earlier, you know. It, it, yeah, we, uh, but we picked that up, the average person, you know, to an overall of their own, of course, 
they wouldn't pick that up, but we picked that up. And you think, how lucky we were to be part of that period of time, you know? Because it's entirely different, but then probably we wouldn't cope with what's going on now, you know? Yes, entertainment evolves, doesn't it? Yes, um, it does. Depending on the, the decade and the, the social yeah. constraints around it, what's happening in the world, and, and certainly with the, the Kermon <coughs> dynasty, you know, we're talking about five generations now, aren't we, yeah. of, of the Kermon family? And I, I bet with each generation you can spot a particular style of entertainment which is, which is happening. And, and certainly with Wayne shows today, you know, I went to see Spiegel-esque, and that's a fusion of... All of that history, <laughs> but also a contemporary mm. perspective yeah. of, of entertainment. Well, there were two reasons for that, I think, uh, because Wayne was, <coughs> drilled is the wrong word, but it was compulsory that he learn the craft of, of what we learnt and we pass, pass it on. But um, <coughs> there were two things. <coughs> My grandfather, the Tivoli, I remember him telling me, he said, listen, son, he said, I'm going to tell you something and don't ever forget it. And I said, what? He said, remember, the two most natural enemies of show business. And I said, natural enemies? What do you mean? He said, there are two natural enemies of show business and you've got to be aware of it. Accountants <laughs> and, and show people, or directors, or meaning the whole facet. Yeah. Because they're natural enemies. Yeah because accountants fight for just money and most accountants don't have a uh, sense of humour and of course it's a generalisation yeah, yeah. but the older I've got, got the more I can see what he meant it's quite amazing Yeah. and the other thing was Max Reddy who we both worked with Max and, and Helen was, she came out of boarding school and the first one she worked with was with me and we did a production number called Hoochie Coochie Henry from Hawaii <laughs> <laughs> and it was, and it was as bad as the name, <laughs> but, um, or maybe not at that time. But um, Max said, he said, remember, son, he said the world loves corn, but you have to learn how to serve it to him. Yeah, what great advice! Two things that I've learned from mm-hmm. two people close, and, and Max was in Stellar, and uh, they were just again a lovely family. Mm-hmm. Of course, they were all Chambers's families, Gloria Dawn, mother and father, Stella Lamont, um, Tony, um, uh, uh, the Perrimans, Jill, uh, all all come from a, f- a family, or at least the second generation, you know? Yeah. That's how it worked in all the circuses. I was named Warren because of the Flying Warrens. There was a Flying Kermon, don't know, they're Flying Depauls, and Shirley, Shirley was my stepmother. Right. And uh, there's the Warrens, the Ashtons, the Perrys, uh, Worths, but they were all families. Yeah. yeah. And they all intermarried. Yeah. And so the families went on. Well, Warren and Pam Kermond, thank you for having me in your home and um, for, for travelling down the, uh, the dynasties that have um, <coughs> gone before. It's uh, really important that we, we capture your history, I think. Thank you. Um, an International Acrobatic Song and Dance Act. It's experience that counts. That was the byline for, for your act there. You've had a lot of experience, obviously, touring all around the world. United States services, bases and clubs in Tokyo, Hong Kong, Manila, Singapore, on TV in Manila and Hong Kong. That was a lot of touring. Did you enjoy touring? Yes. Yeah. Yes, very much then. Well, yeah. that's kind of how it worked, didn't it? Because you got into a show 
and there weren't one-nighters, they were shows, and you'd run for a period uh, of whatever. You know, the first show that Pam got, which she will tell you about, was with uh, Harry Wren and George Wallace and going to New Zealand. All and the old performers yeah, was very lucky. Yeah, mm-hmm. Gladys Moncrief and, uh, you know, and they'd Green been around for a long while. And then later on there were shows because of circuses and they followed the show run and all the circus families and they do the carnivals. But then there was Sorley, George Sorley. I've still got his walking cane and everything in, in my office in there. And uh, we got into that and uh, and you do 12 months. You'd start off uh, um, in Sydney or they go to Bathurst when they still it and you followed the show run all through New South Wales right up to Cairns. And you'd come back and then you would start again and do the southern part of the state or southwestern state. And then from there there was uh, the Follies, Max Reddy and, and Stella Lamond and that family. And they would do Tasmania, then they joined the Queensland shows and they'd be in theatres and Sawley's was a canvas theatre like uh, this, the Spiegelesque um, canvas theatres yeah. and so they followed that tradition but Australia wasn't Europe but, but the same principle and uh, and the staging with Sawley's was like the Tivoli and Tommy Trinder and uh, Freddie Bamberger and Pam they came from London played him to Sydney and then they decided to stay which a lot of acts did as Bob Dyer did and uh, you know a lot of people had a period of time but they all got into touring shows and then I, while at Tivoli, at the end of Tivoli, there was Harry Wren, who had all the theatres. And you would do, always you'd do Sydney and Melbourne, sometimes you'd do Adelaide, occasionally you'd do Perth, and then you'd do Brisbane. But Brisbane wasn't long runs because they didn't have a lot of theatres, but they had a lot of bars and clubs. And then they had television. Up on Mount Cutha, where where the two channels were. So to stay in a job, you just naturally got into a show that had a long run. And without jumping ahead, but like Wayne's been lucky, uh, you know, shouldn't say lucky because, you know, the harder you work, the luckier you become. But uh, when you get long runs, how long were you in New Zealand with that with George? It was Wallace? three months Many in New returned. Zealand, but the whole show was eleven months. Mm. We did New Zealand, and then we came back, and we did um, Newcastle. Strangely enough, Newcastle, um, Sydney. Uh, no, it was Sydney first, wasn't it? Always yeah, Sydney anyway. first. They'd open Sydney. Then, you, then New Zealand. Then. Um, uh, Newcastle, uh, Melbourne, Adelaide, Perth. And Perth was fabulous because we went across by train, same to Adelaide, and um, all the musos would get into the map, you know, the big car, car, and off they'd go playing jam session, and all the entertainers would be in there, not so much top ones but it sounds like it must have been pretty exciting but, uh, but yeah, also was it difficult to leave it. your family I was only 15 right. so was that hard not at no not really right. um it, it yeah it was it was a bit scary yeah, I'll yeah, put it that way but I 
to have the rehearsals here in Sydney for six weeks, well, I sort of really got used to it. And I stayed with my um, aunt in Enmore, so it was good I could just get on the tram and into the city. So um, being 15, it was a bit that way. I realise it more now. I wouldn't let my children go. Like, I wouldn't let Wayne go until he was 18. Mm-hmm. And Dean, I let go early. And and um, I told told the uh, management, I don't want him going to any of the, the parties after. And one of the guys in it, I can't think what his name was, he said, don't worry, I will look after him. He was wonderful. Yeah. But I rang him one day and he's in a taxi coming home from a party. <laughs> so I wasn't very happy. I, I guess you grow up quickly on tour. <laughs> yes. Oh, yes, I did. I did. And there's another aspect of that too. Because you were on tour, you actually became a family. Right. And that's where the situation, you're a show business family. That didn't apply to your surname. That applied to everybody in the show. You, because you were living with each other, doing eight shows a week, moving and on tour. And you were literally a family. So... You, you walk out for each other. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and we were a unit that, and they did, they stuck together and they'd always they did. go out they and they have kept their <coughs> barbecues and picnics and, and it was just a wonderful way of life. So like like some families too, with their squabbles and, oh, yeah. and difficult yeah. patches? Well, yeah, but the, the egos weren't, the egos were different then because Nobody was earning big, big, big money. Yeah. We were all earning a good wage. So that, uh, the, it, it, the problems would be with egos, like I'm the star and you're the support act, or I'm, or I'm the head comic and you're the straight man. The whole thing it was like, a, a, it was a family, it was a warmth, and everybody looked after each other and... And if uh, somebody knew you were going to, say, Newcastle, I'd been there, oh, we had a great boarding house. No, don't go to that hotel. Uh, and they'd, they'd find out all of these little uh, things that you needed to know and it'd, it'd be passed down. Mm. So everybody worked and helped each other. It was, uh, um, yeah, it was at that stage of time. It was very, very, very lovely to be part of that. Well, let's talk about um, your actual families. Right. Pam, you're one of 11 children mm. and grew up in Marrickville. Yes. <laughs> How, were that anyone um, showbiz oriented? Were there any performers or? Um, no, just, just my grandmother. She could sit down, hear a tune on the radio and she'd go and sit down and play it. Then she'd go and get the sheet music. So really, for me, um, that's really all that I had, but we had part of the family, like one was um, an opera singer, one of um, the cousins, but um, there was no one really that... I've, I always filmed my grandmother because um, I stayed with her a lot, so I, I used to love to hear her play. Um, and, uh, and I sort of, when I did start dancing as a little one, um, the music had started and off I'd go, you know, I just love music. So 
my one of my aunts said to my mum, "You must have a taught." So I did, and I went to a, um, a teacher, Helen de Paul, and Buster Noble was her husband, and Helen de Paul was the niece to Warren Stepmon. Right. Shirley de Paul. Like the flying de Paul. Yes, of course. So there's another family thing. Mm. The, the, all those connections. That's our yeah. women. Helen really took me under her wing and she re- was wonderful. She really trained me because I was one of those kids that would do anything, like I'd try anything. So she'd have me doing a dargio and for her. <laughs> <laughs> well, so, what was your exposure to the arts as a kid? Were you going off to the movies or were you able yes, to... Yes, yes. Uh, and I was lucky my mum loved the musicals, so I would go with her a lot. And having that amount of children, sometimes she'd fall asleep. But <laughs> but she was great. She used to take me to them. So, um, and being involved um, with Helen Buster and the family, um, he used to do a radio show and some of the um, kids we go in and we do the singing and the, the, the dancing. Rich Quartley, wasn't it? Richie Quartley. Yeah. yeah. Was the radio? He was on the radio too. Right, right. You would have known uh, their daughter, Trisha Noble. Oh, yes, yeah. very close. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, we're related and, by marriage. Uh, yeah. yeah, yeah. And her sister Jackie and I came up together, and there was three of us. Jackie and um, Beth were sixteen, and I was fifteen, but turned sixteen. Um, now it's amazing, isn't it? I don't think I'd like my sister. <laughs> <laughs> but they do now more. They probably would now. But um, I, no one thought anything of it because we had... Um, <laughs> Queenie Paul was the one that was supposed to look after us, but I think we looked after her. But the, the cast, especially the um, showgirls and that, they really kept their eye on us. We used to drive them nuts. But we did some funny things as that young that you weren't supposed to do. <laughs> <laughs> so you met as, as kids, did you, around that time? Yeah, we did meet through the concerts because we were doing concerts and Buster Noble was a very, one. he was a headline act. And the, he's a, I've got a, a CD of his, uh, an album in my office of Buster. He did it in early days of television, but they were in radio, like uh, Arnie Maud and Cy Meredith, and they started Radio 2 UE I'm in the house in Maroubra. That's where that started. And uh, and their grandson and, 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 and Barry, we're still close. His father was Freddie Meredith, the comic, who worked uh, all those radio shows. And then he he helped... Uh, um, um, here I go, having a senior moment. He helped um, probably no be... Slim Dusty. Slim Dusty. And he helped produce and put all those shows together, right. which because Sim didn't know how to do the ver- the variety stage thing, but he was good at what he did, and of course he's a legend now, you yeah, know. Yeah. So again, all of us touched each other and worked with each other in some form. And the interesting thing was, in a general sense, everybody helped each other. Yeah. Maybe some more than others, but they all worked as a unit to help. And to improve the standard of everybody that performed. It was quite an amazing uh, period of time, actually. 
supporting each other. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah it really yeah. was. Yeah. You know, and the people that you look at and you work, you work with over the years, and and to think that they're oh, but it's life. You know, it happens. But um, uh, because of the publicity and of the uh, um, uh, the communications and television and and, and streaming and now. Everything's open for everyone to see, but you know, those days you had to work hard to even be noticed. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Let me sing a funny song, crazy words that roll along, and if my song can start you laughing, I'm happy. I'm so happy. Let me sing a sad refrain, broken hearts and loved in vain. And if my song can start you laughing, I'm happy. Now let me tune a low-down tune to lift you way out of your seat. And if my song can reach your shoes, start to tap in your feet, well, I'm happy. Let me sing of Dixie's charms, cotton fields, my mammy's arms. And if my song can start you laughing, A funny song, crazy words that roll along, and if my song can't start you laughing, I'm happy, I'm so happy. Let me sing a sad refrain, broken hearts that loved in vain, and if my song can't stop you crying, I'm happy. Now let me prune a low-down tune to lift you. Way out of your seat And if my song can reach your shoes Start to tap in your feet Well, I'm happy Let me sing Of Dixie's charms Cotton fields My money's arms And if my song can start you laughing I'm happy generation entertainer yes. in the showbiz family. Yeah. Where did it all begin? Who was the, the first performer to, to begin Well, with, with my grandfather, uh, yeah. uh, Alexander Kermont, um, but they called him Curly. 
obviously because he he had curly hair, and he started out. Uh, he just loved performing, but he did a lot of things in the days of the depression to survive. So he became a boxer, and they were all up in the um, the northern part of uh, New South Wales, from Inverell, Moree, and and uh, all and Gundawindi. They'd go across the border, and they do all those shows, and they do exhibition fighting. And then he was also a very, very good uh, ballroom dancer and a whipcracker, and they used to do the shows and uh, dancing, whipcracking. Then he met my grandmother, who came from in in Varel. And her, their family were whores, and she didn't do anything. But she was a dancer, so they they put together. This sounds bizarre, but like whip crapping, crapping. <laughs> I'd like to see that act. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, may, maybe at the time it was that kind of an act, but uh, uh, but whip whip cracking and uh, ballroom dancing. And then she became uh, not a serious contortionist, but she did contortion work, and and they started the do lifts with their dancing and that developed from there. That's Charlotte, isn't it? Charlotte came yeah. on, yeah, yeah. And, uh, but again, she had a nickname because everybody had a nickname those days. Never got called your name. And she, her name she, um, was Doll. Everybody called her Doll, like my grandfather. Everybody called him Curly. So uh, right through the family. Even now, uh, Wayne's son, Alexander, is called Zan. So, so that nickname thing seems to hang on, you know. But um, did you have a nickname? Oh well, yeah. I used to get called short ass a lot, and <laughs> and I copped all of the short jokes because I was, well, you know, on a good day, on a hot day, I'd be five foot four. <laughs> Mind you, on a wet day, it was good with my umbrella, my umbrella up. I'd be six foot one. But um, <laughs> but all the short jokes, but of course you don't hear that anymore because you have to but, be polite to people. But your size has certainly been a great asset to your oh, career, totally. hasn't it? You wouldn't have been able to accomplish the, the no. tremendous acrobatics <clears throat> and tricks that you have. <clears throat> I, I could never do what you've done. I'm just, I'm, I'm too much of a streak. But I learned a lot of how to handle that from Freddie Meredith, who who was about five foot four as well, maybe five five. But, but he said to me one day, because he used to call himself um, Shorty and he'd do jokes. He said, the only way to stop it, he said, you do the joke about being short about yourself. He said, and you've shot them down before they start. So I learned to do short jokes and things and it, it really did work. And so you did little lines and everything, you know, and you, and you, and you walk up to somebody normal or tall and you say, God, I can't help it, but I've been looking up to you for all of my life. How lovely to look up at you, you know, and pass out that uh, that compliment, but it's also letting these people know that you know how short you are, but you make a joke of it. Yeah, it's yeah. a psychological mind thing, I think, but it worked. You just made me think about something. I actually started, God, you could never do it now, but I loved Al Jolson, oh, yeah. and I used to play the old 78s, and I, for some reason, the acrobatic and working with my uncles and we would do three and four high up on each shoulders and I hated heights, I don't even like high heel shoes and I hated being up there. But anyhow I thought how, how do I do something that's show business but and the acrobatic was very strenuous but, uh, but modestly I was a very good acrobat, I really was. I could do a row of flips, or they call them backflips. 
backflips now, but we call them flip-flaps. And you, I could do eight or ten across the stage and it was a blur. And Wayne's got it on film and people used to say, oh, you've sped it up. <laughs> but that's not the case. Um, and back somersaults. And back somersaults and things. That's and then on, on ice. <laughs> wow. But that led me into trying to do something which was a variation of that. Or, or something that I wanted to do for me. So I finished up miming. And I just loved Al Jolson, all those songs. But then I started to get some jobs um, in coronation halls and uh, birthdays and weddings. And then uh, uh, my father, who was a mason at the time, well, once you're a mason, you always are, but that, in that time, and you'd learn to do special shows for the masons. And of course, I'd go out as a kid. But there's the trap. I used to wear tails. And I still don't know why I wore tails because I don't think Al Jolson ever did. But anyhow, that was the go. And I used to put a black face on, like Al Jolson <laughs> with a man. Yeah, yeah. And the and the black came from burnt cork. <laughs> Could you imagine even thinking about doing that now? Yeah. <laughs> and, but I finished up working in Morley Johnson's a window, a shop opposite uh, Sydney Town Hall. Um, and I used to do the Christmas shows in the window with speakers on the outside, but I do, I think, five or six shows a day or something. And they had other acts in there, you know. So I worked in windows, and but that opened up a lot of things, you know. As when I was learning ice skating, the ice skating opened up Cinderella on ice and all the ice shows that came here. So having the situation of being versatile by learning a lot of things. It gave me a broader area to work, yeah. and and that's that's how I guess it all was the foundation that started it all. You know, more strings to your bow. That's exactly right. Yeah. yeah. So so uh, it's funny. I haven't spoken about the old Jobson thing for years, but uh, but well, but that's like we talked about earlier with the society and perspectives. It all changes in generations. Yes. And, you know, the minstrel shows were very much a, a part right. of entertainment at that particular minstrel. time. Well, the Tivoli was a black and white minstrel. That's the reason why I think yeah. it gave me the inspiration to do that. And I didn't think I'd ever be able to sing. Well, I'm not a great singer, but I can sing, if you know what I yeah. mean. And uh, you learn by watching performers and by watching shows. And I believe that's still the case. Yeah. It, 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 takes you in different areas, I suppose, now, but, uh, and all the great musicals, like when I saw Singing in the Rain at the MGM Theatre alongside of, um, right next door to David Jones on Elizabeth Street. I never thought that all the years after that my son... <laughs> yes, would be playing Donald O'Connor. Yeah. yeah. And, and my grandson playing his son. I mean, yeah. that, you know. They're, they're the bizarre things that come back and, you know, make you real like, wow, if that kind of in one way led to that. But the great thing about Wayne playing Cosmo Brown was he had to do that eight times a week, whereas That's Don right. O'Connor had the luxury That's of right. recording in a film studio. We met Don O'Connor when he was out here, and because uh, he was a lot older, and I'd heard rumours through the, the traps and things and the people that came out here from America and they put him, but uh, that he didn't do that in one hit. So I asked all that kind of, I said, look, please, I think I'm being rude, but my, I told him, you know, my son has been doing it live and they just said, how many takes did you do? And he said, 
three. He said, I did it all day and we had the three, he said, but they edited it so well, he said, but I went home after the, after the final shot, he said, and I didn't come back for two days and I got into so much trouble. <laughs> But he said, well, he said, he said, he said a word like, he stopped, he said, he said, I was just totally knocked out. But of course, like in movies, you go over things and go over things, I guess, till they get it right. But it was three times, and I think that you're right, Wayne did it eight times a, a week for over two years. Yeah, yeah. Mm. Mm. And it's one of those iconic sequences in, in movie history, isn't it? And he learned to do that. At, at Pam's dancing studio at Cars Park over the Cockra Bay over here, right. um, and they made uh, David Atkins had the frame and everything sent out, and we were rehearsing it. And he could acrobat, but I he, he was a did bit it nervous. Up the side wall first, we yeah. tied you know yeah. around its waist. Yeah, but it was a bit harder because it, it's a bit harder because it can't be vertical; it's got to be slightly. Yeah, um, I, I thought angled. it was amazing doing it. <laughs> and on so that. he said, he said, he said, I've got to do it, Dad. And I said, why? Because uh, I'd worked with David Atkins previously, and he said, he said, well, I, David rang me and said, can you do it? And he said, yes, I can. <laughs> and I said, well, can you? He said, no. He said, well, I'm going to learn. <laughs> and and I said to him, yes, you can. And and. Uh, I was very happy for him because he listened to what I had to say and he took notice of everything and within about, what, half an hour, he could do he, he could do a back somersault, I wasn't worried about that. But just giving him a few little professional advice about how to pull your body in and how to lay back at different angles to make it easier, and he did it. Yeah. He did it once and I didn't have a lunge on him. I, I ran with him and and helped him in the backside to help him to just get that final curve when you're totally upside down, which pulls your feet underneath. And uh, and he got it. And I said, okay. I said, we're going to do it once more on your own uh, with me. And then once on your own, and then it's yours. And he did it. And and that's how he learned to do it. And he was so determined to do it. Yeah. Well, with yeah. that and a lot of the tricks that you have both accomplished, mm. uh, of course, it's it's a, a skill, a knowledge, a, a physicality, but it must be a psychological game also. You've oh, yeah. got to have that belief that you're you are going to yeah. A, yeah. accomplish what you yeah. set out to do. Well, Olympians still do it now. Yeah. You know, you can do something, and you know you can do it, but there's that little area of oh gee, you know, can I? You've got to believe in yourself. You've got to be definite yeah. and stand over yourself. Psych yourself up. Yeah. Right. It's like saying, well, the, recently the kids said to me, can you still do a, a split up? I said, I really don't want to. I said, but if I psych myself up, I know I'd do it. Yeah. That's what I found for me personally uh, yeah. in, in any of the things, you know. And there's a degree of muscle memory too, I suppose, each time you perform that trick. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. What about injuries through your career? Did you, did you yeah. stack well, it at any time and yeah, yeah. hurt yourself? Oh, yeah, I had a... a yeah, I've, I've hurt my ankles a few times. I've, I've hit my knees a few times but and I pull muscles. You, you do that, especially with... The acrobatic side of it, and when you're dancing, and you've got uh, tap shoes on with you, 
with plates on you on, on the shoe on the sole and you could have a slippery surface and all that so you've got to learn how to adjust your body for the surface as well so we used to um, um, get a scraper they had them years ago when they used to do those uh, you could put those rubber soles on your feet you do it at home and scrape them and put glue on and then put the rubber on well I had a couple of those little hand scrapers and I used to scrape the soles right behind the plate on the toes and then you could rub it with some oil or I used to put soap that sounds ridiculous but the soap would dry and would stop you from slipping huh. not thick but just very thin tiny little things you learn you know but it's like everything you know everybody finds a way of uh, and of being oil. very creative, you know. We used to put oil too. Mm. Baby oil, didn't we? Mm. On our souls. But getting back to shows, we, um, I think the greatest thing we did was to go out with Sawlers. I, I went out for 12 months, and then Pam was in New Zealand, came back, and they were short of girls. Again, timing. They were short of ballet girls, and they wanted three. So Helen de Poor rang, uh, sorry, um, Bobby Lebrun's wife, she rang me and she said, we need three ballet girls, because she knew that the family would know, and we had dancing studios around us. So uh, I rang Helen, and, and Helen said, no, I've got nobody now that's old enough that their parents will let them go. But she said, they're coming back from New Zealand. Um, she said, Jackie and Pam, and she said, I'll call you back called me back and she said, I'm not sure whether Jackie wants to go out on tour for 12 months, but she said, Pam might. <laughs> and and I said, okay, so through phone calls, we arranged to go over and organise an audition. And uh, so Pam joined the show. Jackie didn't want to go because she had something else happening further down the track that she wanted to do. And so that created, that created, uh, uh, how we started and we finished up producing and supplying the ballets after we came back to Japan, which is another story. Um, the final show was Sawley's when they shut down and and, uh, and Pam did all, all the choreography and uh, we put the show together and we produced it. And uh, that was the end of it and that was with George Wallace. How ironical to think that my first show was with George Wallace at the Nine Ways of Kingsford with Barton's Follies in a canvas theatre. <laughs> and to think that we did his final show, because he lived at number seven Doncaster Avenue in Kensington. We used to go there a lot with my grandfather and I. And I used, my grandfather used to take me to um, to, to Moe's house, also living in Kensington. Roy Rain. Roy yeah. How old would Sadie. George Wallace have been uh, for, with his last show there? His? He was about 76, wasn't yeah. he? 75, 76. Yeah. Right. yeah. But an another performer who, who grew out of vaudeville and had a, quite a successful film career too in Australia, didn't he? Yes. yes. Yeah. He was wonderful. Yeah. Well, yeah. I, I think he did, the, he did the first movie. There's an argument about that right. or a discussion. But, uh, but he, they tried to get Mo, but, and it was, let George do it. Right. And and that was, uh, I think, one of the, f the first well, commercial films. And then, because Mo never had a lot of success in that area, but Mo's uh, uh, success was at Tivoli and his wife Sadie Gale and, and radio. 
Bigwest Radio was, you know, with Bob Dyer and Jack Davey and all that. And that was my first show with Arnie Maud Meredith on radio. And I, I won the talent quest and I got, uh, I got um, uh, disqualified because you had to be five and I was three. <laughs> oh. And so that, but then Arnie Maud and made a special prize and gave it to me. So that, so I, that was my first show. Again, it was all uh, performers helping and working with each other. That's yeah. how it, how it yeah, all yeah, happened. How it all happens. <laughs> yeah. And, and Pam, your first show, I think, thanks for the memories. Yes. And what, what was that? Was that a review or? Um, a, a variety. A variety show, mm. yeah. Very glamorous. Had the um, show girls, no bras. <laughs> Had about 12 ballet girls. I was down the end talking about being small, I worked very tall. <laughs> and if anyone, and it was good in a way because I used to get the little one on the end. <laughs> but but talking about height, if people even now, if they say to me, "You're tiny," and I'd say, "I am, aren't I? I am, aren't I?" <laughs> so they don't go anywhere. <laughs> Yeah. I get a hug and that's it. But, but your size was always also a great attribute to be a magician's assistant. Oh, yeah. You work with the great Levant. Yes, yes. he yeah, mm. yeah, yeah. Um, he used to sew her in half eight times a week. Le- yeah. Leslie George Cole was his name. That's right. Yeah. 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 Um And I believe you still won't disclose the tricks of the trade. No. No, no they never did. No. I was over at his place at Rose Bay one day. And he lived at, halfway up the hill and there was an, incl- an inclinator because um, that's the only way you get up. The garage was down there, so you wouldn't want to forget your car keys. You've got to go up this thing. And it used to, it used to go up. <laughs> you had to hang on to a, a rail and, and then go up and you'd be shaky. with quite, <laughs> quite dangerous. But um, I was upstairs and he was down in the next layer of uh, grass underneath and the phone rang and he said, Warren, grab the phone. And I said, hello. And it was an English voice and he said, uh, um, is that the residence of uh, the Great Levant? And I said, yes it is. Who can I say speaking? He said, oh, um, uh, and he oomed an art and I said, uh, well he's not on this level, he's further down and he's asked me to pick up the phone. Uh, I, can I say who's calling? And he said, um, tell him a very close friend from London. I yelled out and by that time Les was nearly there. Anyhow, cutting a long story short, it turned out to be uh, Prince Philip because they were mates. Yeah, <laughs> wow. yeah, 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 wow. yeah, yeah, because yeah, he was a big star, Les Levant, in the UK, big yeah. star. Yeah. What and, sort of tricks did you do, Pam? Um, I did the um, getting into the, the, um, oh. the trunk. trunk. Yeah. Getting into the trunk, I did that one. And I did um, one that was the, um, it was a net going across. Levitation. Yep. Mm-hmm. And um, I think they were the two main ones. Did I you have did. swords pushed through a box? And, no. No, 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 no. No. <laughs> but it was fun. Yes, and yes, it was. It was an experience to, to work with him. Yeah, mm. yeah. Well, you won't find that anymore because even I don't know. She really, you won't, won't ever tell you. She no. never ever told me. Well, no. you were sworn to secrecy, I guess. <laughs> oh, that's right. Yeah, yeah. Yes. yeah. And it was the the ethics involved. Yeah, you know? yeah. I just yeah. appreciate. You won't tell anybody. It, you know. 
That's the magic of magic. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so Alexander and Charlotte, did they remain performers all through their life? Yes and no. Um, they finish up at the Tivoli, and as I started to say, my grandfather was a front of house manager during the war, and my father was uh, looking after the uh, uh, the, um, the diesel motors in the dock and worked on the spotlight, not all the time, but relieved. And my, and my grandma was, well, was in wardrobe, and my two uncles were on the stage. So everybody was there working, but because of hard times, again, they'd go and pick up what they could. And it was my grandfather, Curly, who said to my father, Gordon, who also had an act with a friend of his, he said, uh, he said, why don't you get into, uh, with all your mates and if there's a birthday party or shows and get him to start and work around? And that's how it kind of did work for everybody. Yeah. So um, if there was a wedding or there was something else, they'd always have an act. And then old Bill Sadler, who was at the uh, stage door like nearly all, all that period of time, he had two um, two sons who did a song and dance act, and they learned from my stepmother Shirley Paul, and they learned acrobatic off her as well as, as what I did, and uh, that was in our house at Kingsford. So they became mates of ours because of the uh, of learning the trade. And an old Bill, when he left the Tivoli, David N. Martin said to him, he said, I've got all these acts, Tommy Trinder and all these people come out. He said, and I've got them signed up for eight shows and running doing six and, and you're not working on a Sunday because you can't work. And old Bill said, we, why don't we put some of them into clubs? And this is a stage door man telling uh, David N. Martin, who's, who's a CEO in, in today's terms of the Tivoli circuit, and, and so he started the book at Cogra, and after that came St George Leagues Club, but but all down the Yellowwarra, Wollongong, RSL and the Leagues Club, that all started from there, from Bill Sadler. But then all those years later, Lenny and Huey uh, were sent to Japan, and then uh, Lenny married a girl, Sandra, who learned dancing off my stepmother who I knew since she was about 11 or 12. So the three of them went to Japan. So through that story, they rang because the American entrepreneur who was left over from the war was living in Japan. He was booking all the acts and booking everything for the army, all the US Army and all the bases, and he finished up doing the commercial clubs. Um, Yui rang his father and said, we need an act. So next minute, uh, he rings m my father, so we're rehearsing to go with four other girls that came from the studio that could acrobat and dance, and um, what do we call ourselves? The, was it the, we had a what was it called? Oh, the Kermons. Yeah. <laughs> what else? Good name. A good name. The Kermons. The Kermon show. <laughs> Anyhow, we went over there expecting to do... Uh, which everybody, those days, you only did 12 minutes, so, you, you know, or, or 14 or 15, that was it. Only the stars did a bit more time. We arrived there and all of a sudden we're hit with 16-piece uh, uh, orchestras, um, like a mini Fabulous. Las Vegas, Gee, nice. and I mean big time, and, uh, and we had to do 45-minute shows twice a night. So we didn't know what to do, and there's no way we're going to come back 
with our head between our tails. So Pam went crazy and and, uh, and and I got with the musical director guy that they put me, his name was Shamadasar, and we wrote all the music and we put a show together. And with the acrobatic and singing and dancing and I started to sing and I did a thing called Too Close for Comfort because I think it was Bobby Darren or somebody Big orchestra introduction, then you, it, it, the voice would be, be wise, Gah! be smart. I didn't have to sing, I only had to do it a bit <laughs> like. And then I put, I put tap dancing in it. Anyhow, that took about five, six weeks. And, and the agent, Dan Sawyer, he supported us and went through. We finished up being the, uh, the top act in, uh, on the circuit in, uh, right through the Far East in Japan. We, we played the Crown Nightclub, and it was a big round stage that went down three floors with a hydraulic and came up. And a 16-piece band, there was Pepe Murdo, who was a Filipino big band, and I mean, they were big productions. And, and out of that, we um, we worked at Okinawa, and we worked at Taipei, all those places. And then we finished up, we were booked in the Aranita Coliseum in, uh, in Manila, in the Philippines, with Ricky Nelson. And we supported Ricky Nelson, and uh, and we worked with the Mills Brothers, and we were so many big, big name acts, you know, that, that these things just happen, yeah. being in the right place at the right time. Yeah. And that's that's when we came back, and and Sawleys were about to close, and I rang up LeBron, Bob, and he said, "Well, we're going to do a final tour." He said, "But I want, I don't want to have to get ballet," and I said, "We've got it all." And that's how that came about. We finished it, and from that point, we did Sawley's a final two, and then we went with the Follies again, and we did uh, international. Yeah, headliners. Of course, they they did every. Uh, but they, uh, Max Radio, they pulled my, mainly because we're in Melbourne. They pulled uh, mo- most people out of out of television, and Murray and Val, Val Jalea and Murray Fields. Well, they were they were with us in Sawley's the first time around. And they were our great mates, and of course those days you had to do pantomime as well. So so we learned how to do <laughs> pantomime and learned how to do scripts and do comedy and. Uh, He's all behind that. you. Pardon? He's behind you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and and it's amazing. So so you know over the years you gather all that up, yeah. and then we. Because uh, panto is a, a form that doesn't really exist anymore, no, it's it's a it's a shame. unfortunately, because it's mm. such such fun. Yeah. I did one oh, a few, year, few years ago for the little, little kids. It was, uh, oh, Wayne didn't know, but we did it at the Opera House in the little room down there. But oh, it was yeah. for all little kids with the ballet, and there was a, a beautiful string orchestra, and I played the old the old toy maker. It was, uh, uh, but they wanted a comedy-type involvement with the with the, the little kids and, and be able to yeah. talk to them, you know, yeah. and uh, and uh, and of course I'd, I'd worked pantomime. I've been around working with kids all my life, so I wasn't worried about that. But but that, those things just happen as well, you know. So so then uh, if, uh, after Sawley's we came back from Japan. Then I went. I fell back into doing IMT every uh, every other week, three weeks. But that was when it was only in Melbourne, okay. and they fly us down. And then when it went network. Um, and I, I did one performance of my own show in Adelaide because I worked with Ernie Sigley a lot down there and then uh, they gave me a daytime show uh, with Bernard King 
uh, called Name That Tune. But we only did one because <laughs> Channel 7 went network and so they just wiped everything, you know, you know saving money, accountants. Yes, of course. It was all about money. So, so, so with those television gigs, were you singing or were you you're doing oh, yeah, side, yeah. side acts? I, I did a little bit of both, but I did right. mostly song and dance. So right. it was because um, Russell Stubbings, who was a choreographer, was a tap dancer and he was naturally did theatre and, you know, we all know each other, as you, as you know. And, and so he wanted that because they were doing a lot of comedy and a lot of other stuff, but they didn't have, like, single, straight, straight um, song and dance. And they didn't want to have to be rehearsing and playing ballet on top of the opening number or whatever they did, you know. Yeah. 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 And then the same thing, uh, we were coming back from America, we went into Hawaii for a couple of days, and, and there was Don Lane working in the nightclub. <laughs> but, um, and so um, we saw him, he was wonderful. We came back home, and about three months later, another agent made a mind, he said, you want to come with me to the Channel 9? We're, we're looking at a new act, a guy out from... Honolulu, who, um, who they're thinking about, because um, his, his real name was Morton Isaacson. And yeah, we went in there and, you know, we're with the hierarchy of Channel 9 those days, and we were there when they said we like him. And so that started. Went and, on to headline the Tonight Show. The yeah, Tonight and show. then uh, right at the end of his life, sadly, Pam and I used to take him to go and see Wayne's show at Glen Street Theatre and pick him up, and I used to go and have... Um, he loved uh, Hungarian goulash. I used to take him to Double Bay and have lunch, but his his uh, memory was going, which is very very sad. Yeah. So it's funny how all these little things that happen in your life, you know. But but performances, getting back to the show business thing. That's um, you know we've just worked with so many big names. We're working the third time in Japan, out of Akasaka, and we were in. The Crown nightclub was a real nightclub, as we knew it, but then they built the big ones. And we were in one there, which was opposite, and I can't think of the name of the place now, but it was enormous, 16-piece, 14 in the belt. I mean, the Crown? Was, no, the Crown was the one in the Ginza, that's what we oh, were. sorry. And, anyhow, we're working there, and, and after we finished, uh, one of the guys said, we spoke a little English, he said, stay, 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 don't go. Anyhow, we went back to the dressing room, we stayed, he brought back a magnum of champagne. And I said, you know, Frank Sinatra, who was playing opposite, was in to see the show, they had to get back, and, and I don't know whether it came from him directly, but there was a magnum of champagne. Uh, congratulations. From all the was. Yeah, yeah. So there was all these little things that occur in your life, you know. That they're, they're, pinch they're, yourself they're, moments. Pardon? Pinch yourself moments. Yeah, that's, yeah. that's a good analogy. I yeah. like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, your dad, Eric, did he work no, with... No, Gordon was mine. Gordon, sorry. Yeah. Did he, yes, did he work with Eric and... and oh, yes, yeah, so, yeah, there yeah, were yeah. three of them. Yeah, and did, he did his back, didn't he? Yes, he hurt himself, but, but also with, with the depression, he decided to help his father, my grandfather, being the eldest son, um support the family and to be able to pay for the two younger brothers right. to to learn learn their craft and, and and he had a knockabout act which he didn't i mean those days knockabout act you only had to learn how to fall and get up again you know 
But it was it was it was a comedy act. It was eccentric dancing. Eccentric dancing, yeah, yeah, yeah that's right. You're right. Mm. Yeah, and so there, there are a couple of um, eccentric dancers I've seen footage of, which do sort of an Egyptian number. Oh, they do many the, things. Yes, yeah. yes, and that was a that was a stage. Uh, pardon the pun on stage, but that was a, a, um, a stage of a stage in show business where they did all of this, and it was like Egyptian and all that, yeah, yes, yeah. yeah, yeah, but then they they did drunk, and my uncles started, started it in tails and did an acrobatic drunk act, where they'd knock each other over and then go up into a hand balance and... and, and <laughs> comedy. And, and comedy. Cool. Then they put it on ice, because they worked with Sonia Heaney, and they, and they worked in Europe. And then they went back, and after doing the Sonia Heaney show, Sheepset and Johnson, and they were the starring act in the biggest ice show in the world for 14 years. They put it on ice. And they did a thing called the Suicide Drop, which my young, youngest uncle, he was a lot slimmer, slimmer and lighter, he would go up, but he'd, he'd be the other way around. And, he, and, uh, and Eric which we call Tibby, another nickname. Yeah. After they did all that, he'd put him back there and he'd drop. And Normie would drop and go right down his back, literally. And, and Tibby would put his hands underneath and catch him in the neck and shoulder and pull him through. And it was called the suicide drop. And, and they developed it and they got a drum roll and it was very, very traumatic. And that used to blow the audience away. And it was dangerous. Yeah. 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 But... Um, yeah. Performers could make a career out of one or two acts, I guess, because yes. they're yeah. only showing it to the audience who are coming to see them. Unlike that's today, right. you go right. on TV to an act and millions yeah, of people have seen it. That's right. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. yeah, yes. Yes, and of course you've got, uh, even if you go and work in uh, in stadiums or, you know. But when we work with Ricky Nelson in the Araneda Coliseum, with George Araneta and Mrs. Marcos was there. <laughs> it was interesting, the lady with the shoes. But uh, there were 38,000 people. Wow. And that was our first big hit. 38,000. It's amazing. Wow. Amazing to walk out mm. see and feel that wave of, of <laughs> reaction. Yeah. Oh, yes, and the applause was, was thunderous. It was just unbelievable. And uh, But it was no different from in principle from what you do in theatres and and Ricky and his entourage because he he got killed uh, in that plane crash about what under a year after we uh, worked with him and he was a lovely guy we sat down in lounges and first time we'd ever seen in our life the unbelievable mansion and he had a swimming pool I'd never seen before. You dive inside and go underneath the glass and you come out the other side. It was inside, outside pool. And he had uh, walls around it, they were never as high as his ceiling, and guards everywhere, you know, because that was a, a very um, interesting place, the Philippines, uh, in those days. Yeah. It sure but, uh, was. Yeah, Hang so, up your guns. <laughs> you know, so I think... Apart from having our family and our kids, but the interesting thing was that we had the most amazing life, yeah. amazing, amazing time, yeah. in an amazing time, yeah. which gave us an amazing life. We, you know, 
things that we've done and where we've been and the nightclubs when I first started to work really on my own I was with checkers in um, in uh, Pitt Street uh, right near uh, uh, Martin Place when uh, with Joe Martin who was a wonderful comic and uh, where the woman came in one night and the bloke with the husband was down with uh, another woman in there and he walked up up the stairs on the footpath and she shot him <laughs> and killed him. So we were working in that time and Wally Norman's, uh, Wally Norman's band and uh, it, it, that was when it was really, uh, the Australian show business industry was really starting to get really high because all the foreign acts were starting to come in and the Americans and the Poms, you know, that was timing. I just happened to be moving at the same pace at the same time. Yeah. Is that huge club circuit took off? Yeah, yes. Yeah, yeah. yeah but then it was nightclubs, and then we we all worked the Mandarin Club. You know, the first the first performance at, uh, with Ricky May when he came over from New Zealand. Norman Erskine and Edwin Duff and I were working at the Mandarin Club, and uh, and Erko said, "Hey, you two." You going? And, and and I said, yeah, I'm going to go home. And you know, of course, they were late hours. We didn't. The last show was at midnight or something. And, and he said, no, I want you to stay. And and uh, and Edwin, he said, why? What am I to look at? You know, because he was beautifully gay, um, and worked it well because he'd send himself up. A lovely character, he was <laughs> lovely bloke. And uh, so we watched, and Urko did his his finale, and 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 Adley with the band and he said, no, I want to introduce you to him, blah, 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 watch out for him. He introduces Ricky May, so that was his first show in Australia. And then all those years later, Wayne did uh, Guys and Dolls with Ricky and Ricky, uh, you know, we were all just great mates, you know, from his first performance. And uh, what an entertainer and uh, yeah. what a wonderful... He loved was. every minute of what he did to yeah. him. But he loved Mel Torme, and that's that's where that came from. And wow! Yes, you can see it, tones it, of oh, and he's scatting yeah. and phrasings yeah. and everything, you know. So there's lots of these wonderful little highlights that you know when you start to talk and it comes back to you that you've worked with. But um, you ever thought of writing a book? <laughs> oh, I mean, they've, I've been asked that for the last ten years, but uh, maybe I'm being a bit negative, but. You ask us, you know. I ask myself because other people have written books, but who's going to read it? Yeah. There'd only be a handful of people outside of family and friends. But it becomes a, a, an historical document that yeah. captures. You know. Well, Wayne's got a lot of recordings. What you're doing now yeah, is of, oh, of, of what is. we've done. Yeah, there's a little microphone stand over there that every now and again we do a bit. But but I understand your point. But Maybe that, uh, maybe I might do that before I'm 90. <laughs> <laughs> because I've got a few I more think people to annoy you. Fair enough. Now, nicknames again. Tibby, how did he get that nickname? Because when he was born, and he was born down the south coast in the uh, bottom of Bullo Pass, I believe, and, but uh, he was looked after by the doctor wasn't there for his birth. And uh, there was a head nurse or matron, or what they call them, and her name was Nurse Tibby, surname, I think. 
and that's what we got passed down to us. And and Eric didn't have a, a formal name, and so they nursed Tibbies. And so the Tibby and the nurse and, and him became a little triangle Fantastic. which came down yeah. to him. But um, and my youngest uh, uncle, his uh, first name was Aubrey Norman, but he didn't like Aubrey and I don't blame him, so he reversed it and became Normie. Or Norman, but it was Normie. And all of his life, everybody called him Normie. Now, he ended up having an ice skating rink in... Yeah. Yes, after they finished with the ice the police, yeah. they <coughs> we, we lived with them in San Francisco for some time, and that was when Wayne, Wayne had his fifth and sixth birthday in San Francisco. And we used to go down there and skate and teach, and Wayne learned to ice skate there. They bought the Burlingame. They bought the Burlingame. Burlingame ice rink in Burlingame. And there was an old factory that they converted and, and put the ice rink in. They did very well, but I believe it's gone now. And uh, I don't know what it's gone back back to, maybe a factory or something. But it was in a good area where there was a good parking lot and, you know, all of the things that happened here. Still, it, life is the same, really, when you think about it. It's just they grew up on another side of the road. So... Uh, they had a beautiful home in Millbrae on the hill overlooking San Francisco Airport and it was a great spot, it was really lovely and uh, that was on the side of a hill too wasn't it so um, and we spent a long time there and uh, I was looking for work and, and it wasn't easy and then I went to LA and had a few uh, meetings with people but if I, you know um, I could have got into a movie thing, but they, it, it was a bit of porn and all that, and I thought, no, I don't need all that, thank you. Yeah. And I came back, and we made a decision that, that we didn't want to uh, work in America. Right. And so we came back, and, and we got stuck into it here. Yeah. And I, we were only home. I was home about six or eight weeks, and I got a call from, uh, from an agent made him on. And he said, you said, do you want to go to South Africa? And so after a long chat, and I, we didn't have a lot of work, so I said, yeah. So I went to Durban and to Cape Town, and then we went up to Salisbury, Rhodesia, which, which is now called Zimbabwe. And, uh, and so I finished up uh, doing very well. And then, what's his name? A big American, uh, uh, sorry, a big... Um, um, English rock star like a Ricky Nelson type. They brought him out, and uh, and then Mary Arnold, who was his agent, came to see him work. Well, she was out having a holiday with him again, and then she wanted me to take me back to London, and was offering me good work. But then, uh, and it's funny, I've never regretted it. But I said no because I was talking to. Wayne, who was only a little kid, on the phone he was crying. Yeah. He said, come home, Daddy. Yeah. And it's funny, because I came back and we were lucky, weren't we? The work just came back. Brilliant. Meant to be. Yes, yes. And then, uh, and then uh, I saw a couple of acts over there, which my agent mate and I, then we 
we brought them out and uh, and so I was working in as a, as a bit of a booker as well as producing and working as an actor and I formed a company and uh, and Pam went into a dancing studio and yeah. uh, a parent, a p- parenthood would would uh, give you a, an added degree of responsibility I guess as performers isn't it it's yes. sort of it would pause your career for a while I imagine Pam <coughs> yes hard to travel at first um, well I took Wayne everywhere I wouldn't leave him and then uh, with Claudine we I'd only travel school holidays and, and we'd take them with us yeah well that was <laughs> and good we traveled three <laughs> yeah because I always arranged the cruise because all the Russian ships were doing well then we were going away on cruises but uh, we we managed to incorporate all that in but I'll tell you a story we had a we had lovely trunks made in Japan, aluminium trunks, it was, you know, we gathered stuff and props and we had to have the trunks made to get everything back when we decided to come back. So when we were in New Zealand with the Great Levan, Wayne was only barely walking. So we used to empty the trunk and we had a mattress in there and we'd open it up and we had it all set up and there's no way the lid could have came down the way we had it done. And so that was his bed. And he'd go into the theatre, into the dressing room, he'd go to bed, and this is a true story. He would go fall asleep. As soon as he heard the music, fall asleep. And when the finale was happening at the end of it, he'd wake up. It was unbelievable timing. Right. And we'd get him out and, and then we'd pack everything up and everything he'd go home. So he was almost born in the trunk because he... <laughs> well, he certainly slept yeah. in a trunk. We did three months of that, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. And we used to have him in the bassinet behind... <laughs> we were doing shows up at, um, at, up at Copacabana or Central Coast. We opened a big hotel up there and uh, I had the band to put the whole show in. So we put the bassinet behind the piano. You know, upright, right behind the piano. He used to sleep. Show was over, he'd wake up. <laughs> and, and that's a true story. Great. Yeah, and he'd yeah, do it overnight yeah. too. He'd um, be sleeping in the trunk in the dressing room. And it was amazing. Before the finale, he'd wake. So we'd take him on for the finale. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. Funny, yeah. isn't it? Mm. Well, he obviously had showbiz in his veins. Oh, okay. yeah. Yeah, he really, uh, he, he really does. Now, you satisfied a, a long-burning ambition to appear in a, a big musical with, with Crazy For You and then Fiddler on the Roof. Yes. Different I, style of performance. You enjoyed that? Because of Singing in the Rain, the movie, because I saw it about nine times, I was fascinated. And incidentally, I've worked with Debbie Reynolds quite a few times. We've met Tony Reynolds. We met Don Lake on her, and we were in the studios in LA with Helga, mm-hmm. watching a rehearsal and, and that, with Gene Kelly, this far away. He said, pretty weird, wonderful. So I had this thing about musical theatre, plus we'd been to Broadway and we'd seen shows and we, were, we saw Crazy for You in, 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 uh, on Broadway. <laughs> 
little did I know we came back and it was about four weeks after they were going to do it here and I got a call because they, 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 they weren't too many older good tap dancers and they needed a couple of old blokes. Well, Annie needed one in the finish, it was me. But um, I got a chance to do a musical. And I've never told anybody this, ever, not even Pam. That was one of the highlights of my life. Yeah. Not, not for any reason, not for money, nothing. But it was something that I wanted to do. And I find it difficult to talk about it because it's still in my heart. And uh, Susan Strowman, who we we finished up, she came out and my wife and her husband um, choreographed it. And we were fascinated with the choreography when we saw it. And here I'm going to do it. The first day of rehearsals, we, we had a read and then they said have a break and I walked out, it was the Empire Theatre down at down Central Station, apartment block now. There's a little lane. I walked out of the hall, I walked into the, the lane and I walked up the corner where the theatre was. And I don't know why, I just totally cracked up. I never stopped crying with happiness. Yeah, that's wonderful. Yeah. And then we did um, a year with that. We still waxed up. I've got the poster in my office here. And then to another situation, I, to another mate of mine um, um, who's, a, who, who's an English, his performer, father was a great performer in the UK. But again, they were running out of performers because there were so many shows on. They never had enough people and they're desperate to get people. And uh, so out of desperation of trying to get somebody, I went in, someone who could could dance and move, you know. So then the American guy said, I know that name from New York and he remembers my two uncles. In America were Shipset and Johnson. And he was in crazy for you in the original production. So we became really good buddies. Small and, world show business, isn't it? And he <laughs> put me in, he said, I don't want you to do anything. And I said, oh, I, just, I, I said, because of my height. He said, no, yes, because of your height. He said, I want you to be the rabbi. because <laughs> it'll be a nice contrast. Yeah, and so he nurtured me and cutting a long story short with that, <laughs> when I met Topol, I was on the board of Variety, the children's charity, when the whole of Australia was in Sydney. <coughs> I was on that board for 23 years and created a lot of the programs and the shows. And when we did the International Convention at the Entertainment Centre Moorpark, we produced that, Pam's Kids, and, and I had a lot of people around me who were all theatrically minded. And Paul Hogan was the first president. So it was pretty big stuff. I'd been to a lot of different, uh, as a director, I'd been to a lot of uh, of um, uh, meetings and, and and Hawaii and a few other places because we wanted to go and represent, you know, what we were doing. And they, and sh the variety was started. The symbol now, which we created in Australia, was a top hat yep. because it was a, it was variety circus. 
Right. And that's how it started. <coughs> so we all had a, pardon the pun, we, but we all had a heart for variety because of the show business links. So, so and I got an OAM out of that, as well as a couple of other things. And, uh, well, I didn't do that to get an OAM. I didn't even know I was going to get one. But anyhow, um, um, we divided it up. And and, uh, and then I started to do some bashes with another place mate of mine who was my drummer at Breast Point Casino. And we, he and I are like brothers now, have been for years. But I'd, I've done about 130 bashes. <laughs> but we opened up Queensland, we opened, I didn't open Victoria, but I was part of that. I was part of South Australia, WA and Northern Territory. So I've helped, as a team, open up variety then because a lot of people are old or they pass on and so it's a whole different ball game and now they're all university trained and they don't want to know anything about show business and all oh, oh, the, the heart of what it's about and we only ever use spent we only ever use seven cents in the dollar how was that and that, that was another thing but um but out of that came some wonderful friendships and connections so I guess that inspired me because of learning the tap dancing as a kid and then with Pam in the studio and that we've had kids all around us all of our life. So that's a recipe, it just keeps building on itself, doesn't it? Yeah. You know? So, so oh yeah, yeah it's, it's, been a, it's been a wonderful uh, road. Mm. And Pam, you, your studio you ran for 41 years, I believe. Yeah. 42. 42, <laughs> I stand corrected. And helped mm. Kate for two mm. years. But that, that must be uh, very satisfying, training generations oh, of performers yeah. that have I did. gone on to... I like on. children yeah. and young people. No, she much. doesn't like them. She idolises them. Yeah. She just loves kids, really does. Yeah. And it, it yeah. keeps you young too, doesn't it? Yeah. Working with kids. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, um... Yeah, um, even um, now I still like them to be disciplined. <laughs> yes, yes, that helps. That's <laughs> important know, too. Right. I couldn't believe it when I was closing up. They couldn't believe I was going to give it away. I was 74 and um, I just wanted to do other things like, well, Claudine was having a baby, so I wanted to be able to help her. But, um, yeah, that, they said to me, that I cared, isn't that? I thought that was lovely. Yeah. Like, you know, they used to tell me they loved me and all, but I never got involved with them. Yeah. And and I only dealt with the children, teenagers and all. I never got into anything with the parents. I'd talk to them, they could always approach me, mm-hmm. but I never got garbage. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> But how nice to know that, that, that they were aware that, yeah, that you did was, care. I was, yeah, I thought it was lovely. Yeah. Mm. Let me, um, if I may, uh, I suppose it's a kind of conclusion, but tell you because it's relevant. Yep. I only stopped working about, what was it, three years ago? If that um, hardened a few. Yeah. How old are you now, Warren? 86. Right. Gee. Yeah, I, I didn't stop... Uh, really working hard. I was, what, 70, 79 or something. I was nearly 80, but then I was doing things 
with Wayne and, and my grandson, or three Gencho, their name, not my, uh, uh, I didn't think of that. And we did some wonderful things that uh, Wayne will talk about. And the last big one, we were at the um, at the art centre in Melbourne, and uh, what's it called? Um, 3,000 seater. And we were doing two shows morning and night. And, and I thought, gee, you know, I've worked a lot of theatre and pantomime and, and, and television in Melbourne. And Melbourne people are very faithful. They look after their own farm more there now than what we do here. And I thought, well, there'd be a few people know me, but I think really this is Wayne's, uh, this has got to fall on Wayne's name because he was done so many wonderful musicals down there. And he did one uh, with the producers, which you would know. And that, to me, he was just sensational. He, he was better than what we saw on Broadway. And, and that's not being biased. And he did something theatrically that just blew me away with the comedy. He broke the fourth wall. And uh, so I had a wonderful um, um, finale. For three, four years, you know, did not doing a lot of work, but doing work with the three gen. Anyhow, with the pacemaker and a few other things, I, my body was wearing out. I could feel it. In the last show we did, we did thing a show at the Opera Centre, Elizabeth Street, which we'd done before. Wayne and I, all showbiz is raising money for equity and you know for our our peers. Sound lighting, everything was there, there and seating, it was all done and all professional people. Lighting, sound, all. It's nice working to your peers, it really is. But um, there was only two acts on the bill that got a standing ovation from their peers. It was Nancy Hayes and Wayne and I. I got in the car and I don't know how I lifted my legs up to get in the car. On the way back, I said to Wayne, I said, I can't do any more. My body's worn out. And that's how I finished. What a lovely finale. And I did it. I don't like saying my way, but I did it. I was in charge of how I finished, and I didn't want to go back and hang on to something that is gone, you know, because yeah. I've seen too many people do that. Yeah, knowing that it's on the timing, isn't it? Yes, yes. yes. Well, you're right. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> And so that's a nice memory to have. Yeah. Well, Warren, Pam, is, is there no business like show business? No, there's not. <laughs> <laughs> it's a wonderful life and it's just wonderful. You know, if there are times because you're self-employed and the moment there's trouble of any description, the first dollar that people stop spending is the entertainment dollar. And we've just gone through two years of this. So therefore, it's the most wonderful life to have to work because it's not work. Mm. I've never ever not wanted to go to work. But you've got to look after yourself to make sure that you can provide for yourself. That's the important thing. So what that does, if you can be successful in show business, to be able to pay or create some form of lifestyle and, and, and show business where he can pay from that, pay for that, um, there's no other job in the world like that, yeah. you know?
and the friendships and the memories and that. You know, I got, I know that um, you know people who are accountants and all that have got the same feeling, but they don't have the the imagination and the creativity of feeling. It's a very, it's a very special world. Yeah. Mm. Well, thanks for sharing your story today. Oh. I, I appreciate it. It's been You've wonderful. Been no, thank you, Peter. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I hope we haven't bored you too much. No, uh, not at all. And I'm sure you know everyone out there listening has uh, <laughs> just been riveted. So thank you. Join us next time as we continue our celebration of the Kermon Showbiz dynasty when we meet the fourth generation of the family, Warren's son Wayne and his wife Katie. They have both carved vibrant careers as performers, producers and creatives. It will be another fascinating chat and an essential chronicle of life in the performing arts in Australia. Thanks for joining us in this episode. You can check out all of the episodes featured in the podcast thus far by visiting our website, www.stagespodcast.com.au. And don't forget the Stages podcast is being featured in this year's Vivid Sydney program with a three-evening series of conversations with leading arts practitioners. Come down to the Powerhouse Museum and be in the audience for Stages Live on June 2nd, 9th, and or 16th. It will be great to have the chance to say hello and be a part of the recording of these exciting episodes. On June 2nd, we talk to producer Carmen Pavlovich. Uh, on June 9th, it's designers Jennifer Irwin and Julie Lynch. And we conclude on um, June 16th with artistic director of the Griffin Theatre Company, Declan Green. I'm Peter Ayers. Keep well, keep warm, stay safe, and I'll catch you next time.